What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Sitting in for Bill this week, I'm Jim Gibson, the Deputy Washington Editor at NBC News Digital. Joining me this week, Niall Stanich, White House columnist with The Hill, Kirk Beto, Managing Editor at National Journal Hotline, and Hunter Walker, founder and reporter of the Uprising newsletter on Substack. First, we'll discuss the latest wave of the coronavirus that is sweeping the nation as the White House struggles to make testing available and the CDC is defending their latest recommendation. New redistricting maps are finished in Virginia and Michigan. Did it not go as badly for Democrats as many had worried? Next week, we'll mark the one-year anniversary of the January 6th riot. Where are we now on holding those accountable a year later? We'll take an extra look at some of the most important but underappreciated stories of the last year. And finally, we will be talking about Harry Reid, the titan of the Senate who we lost this week. And at the end of the podcast, when Bill, who was off spending time with his family in California, will join us briefly to share his thoughts on the life of the majority leader. Let's jump right into the news. We've all seen as COVID's uh spread across the nation. We've seen a huge uptick in cases uh, over the Christmas holiday, long lines, and it seems like the White House is really struggling um, to answer a lot of questions on the testing front. Niall, how about you uh, tell us, what do we see the White House trying to do uh, to to address some of these testing and COVID issues? Um, And then the CDC this week sort of setting people um, a a flurry with their new recommendations. So there are a few things there, Ginger. I mean, one is obviously the president has promised to bring 500 million uh, home test kits on stream. There are, though, as you're aware, some Um, complexities around that. One is that at least a few days ago, the contract for those tests had still not been signed. The website by which people will be able to order those tests won't uh, go up until sometime next month. But I think more broadly, the White House is trying to uh, thread quite a fine needle overall on this um, matter. Because on one hand, the president keeps referring to the fact that the rise of Omicron is not a cause for panic, even though it's a cause for concern. And he has emphasized that if you're vaccinated and boosted, the risks are really fairly small. On the other hand, he can't be seen to make light of a situation where we have the highest number ever in terms of new cases, where we have disruption to travel plans, where there is genuine concern as to what strain might be placed on the healthcare system. So I I do think it's a dilemma. I'm not sure there's a perfect way to address it or to resolve that dilemma. But I take your point that the White House is struggling to quite a considerable extent with it. Kirk, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the struggle and how we see it playing out with the public. Um, This was 
being able to competently handle the pandemic was Biden's big selling point in his campaign last year. Is this going to hurt him or are voters still looking at this saying, you know, he's doing the best that he can? Well, look at it like this. Before we came on here, we were all talking about kind of how COVID has impacted all of our holiday plans. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in the country right now who doesn't know someone who has had plans change over the last three weeks because of the uh, the new variants. Uh, if there's someone who hasn't been infected, cases are on the rise all over. So this is an issue that voters are feeling in their homes right now. And you got to remember that this has been about seven months since Biden's big 4th of July speech where he declared independence from the virus, and we're still in the grips of it right now. This morning, I was looking up what uh, I was on 538 looking at how America voters uh, responding to Biden's uh, handling of the virus and his approval ratings peaked in July right before that speech. But then as the Delta variant came in the summer, now we're uh, had the Omicron variant. They've steadily declined until leveling out right now at about 48% approved, 46% disapproved right now. And as you said, Biden campaign on a return to normal. And now as we're entering year three of the pandemic, and we're still struggling to define, okay, what is fully vaccinated right now? What can we do if we do get infected, if we do get exposed, this all this uncertainty and all this chaos is really, I think, going to weigh down Biden and Democrats writ large heading into the midterms later this later next year. Hunter, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Republicans and all of this. I mean, we see you know folks like DeSantis, um, who sort of decided that the pandemic was over. A year ago, uh, he was going to operate that way. Now, kind of uh, missing in action. Uh, we saw Trump criticizing Biden for his pandemic response, but it, this back and forth after Trump then encouraged had encouraged everyone to go get boosted, which was sort of an interesting moment. But I, and then they 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 go back and forth where they're it's not that bad. Oh, it's bad, and we should criticize Biden. Are they finding? Are they just throwing everything that they can at them? Or um, is there any sign that they're going to pick a lane of criticism? <laughs> well, I, I think you're you're spot on in sort of pointing out how all over the place Republican messaging has been, um, you know, in one sense. And I think, you know, we have to dive into this a bit when we talk about coronavirus on sort of the political and messaging level, uh, because, you know, Republicans have had a lot of success in a way, and they've had a lot of success after sort of in the beginning of the virus being against social distancing, being for the opening of uh, the economy, being against mask mandates. And, you know, we sort of know now that a lot of this stuff was disastrous on in terms of people's health, but politically it was quite successful. I mean, you know, clearly there is a segment of the country that is, um, you know, averse to the vaccine. There is a segment of the country that, you know, is really angry about mask mandates, even though we know, you know, scientists really recommend this and it's a fairly small precaution. Um, and there's also, I think, you know, especially, you know, as Kirk was noting, we're approaching year three, um, people who are sort of tired of the precautions. Um, so the Republicans, you know, policies that they have had, they've retreated from in many instances, and they didn't necessarily make sense in the first place, but they were successful politically. 
And then we go over to Biden. And, you know, as I think Niall was alluding to, he really cast himself as the pandemic president. This is a guy who I was very struck the other day. I was listening to a local news broadcast with a congressman from Maryland, and he was talking about the opiate crisis. And he was saying, you know, oh, I expect Biden's going to do great things on this. I think it was David Trone. Um, he was saying Biden's going to do great things with, with this once he's done with the pandemic. And, you know, I was in the White House in, in, in the early days of the Biden administration, and they were really casting this as the president's sole focus. And, you know, he would get to all this other stuff that progressives and other people in his base might have wanted, you know, once he was done getting the pandemic under control. And here we are, and the pandemic is not under control. Now, the reality has changed in terms of sort of the variants and particularly Omicron, but I think, you know, Biden set a bar that was fairly high for himself. Things are not going well. And Republicans, even if they haven't posed a solution, have, I think, had some success taking shots at, you know, the precautionary approach that Biden and Democrats at the state level, at least initially advocated for. And of course, now you see a lot of progressives that I'm talking to are really upset to see the CDC um, bring the recommendation down um, to five days of isolation for people who are asymptomatic um, with Omicron. They see that as, you know, kowtowing to business, sort of almost taking this Republican-like line of supporting the economy, you know, against all science. Um, and there's been a lot of backlash, I think, in the past, you know, 12-ish hours for the CDC kind of changing their tune on that. Yeah, I think that it was a lot of criticism and we just saw the anxiety of the nation um, in some of that too, that, um, that this this fear that if we um, that it spreads too much, that it will start to hit people. Um, I want to move on a little bit because I think that you're right. We're talking about politics and messaging. And part of this is um, maps. Uh, we got redistricting maps, new maps in this week in Michigan and Virginia, more states. These are two states who had independent commissions set up uh, to look at their maps. Um, and, and we've got more states coming in Kirk, I'm wondering, Virginia and Michigan did not look as bad for Democrats as some had feared, um, especially Virginia that sort of is controlled by Democrats and then let a bipartisan commission do it after a vote. Um, is this not going as badly as some had feared in the Democratic Party? Uh, it's really not in the early goings here. About half the states so far who need to redraw new maps have finished so right now. And you know, big picture, it looks a little bit of a wash right now in terms of who has an advantage. Early on this year, it looked like Republicans could draw themselves into the majority in the House just from redistricting alone. They need to only flip five seats. But after Republicans in Georgia and this new map in Virginia didn't go, didn't it, the Republicans in Georgia didn't press their advantage as much as they probably could have, leaving uh, a few national GOP groups a little bit upset. And you saw the same thing in uh, Indiana, even, which just shored up more incumbent protection. The thing here, as I'm looking at these maps and the big picture, is that Republicans in 2011, in the last redraw, really kind of hit this, a ceiling almost with how much they cut into Democrat seats. And so there wasn't as much room for them to play around with this time without 
uh, getting unwanted attention from the Justice Department or, as we've seen recently, uh, voting rights groups in the actual states themselves challenging these maps in state courts. So when you talk to organizations like the National Republican Redistricting Trust, which kind of advises all these Republican states on how to draw their maps, they've been telling that their uh, members of the state legislatures to do what you can do legally. Don't push the advantage, you know, stay within the bounds of the law, which, you know, seems a little bit like common sense, but it, there it's, that's the line that they're walking right now in terms of these maps. And in Michigan and Virginia, it's really the, it's really the perfect distillation of the difference between a bipartisan commission and an independent commission. You know, both these organizations were formed in the last five years in response to some super gerrymandered maps. And Virginia's was a bipartisan commission that, you know, had these high hopes of ending kind of this uh, era of gerrymandering from the uh, House of Delt, from the state legislature, but just got completely deadlocked during the process and ultimately failed in this experiment in you know, commission-based redistricting, and they had to punt the drawing to the state Supreme Court, which initially looked like it would draw out Abigail Spamberger, Elaine Loria, and Jennifer Weston, but they revised their initial draft of those maps earlier this week. It looks like we're going to have a few more competitive districts here. Spamberger seems a little bit safer slightly. She's a uh, Democrat based out of the central Virginia area. And then in Michigan, it's an independent commission without any lawmakers on there. And it was, uh, members were drawn at random from a pool. And after a few, you know, uh, fits and starts here, some transparency issues, they came out with a map that ultimately is going to probably split about seven, six for Democrats right now. Now, the biggest issue with this one is that it eliminates two majority black congressional districts, which should be the basis for a legal challenge later. But Michigan, I think, should kind of be looked at as a prime example of a independent commission that works, while Virginia should be looked at as a bipartisan commission that failed for any states that are thinking about adopting a similar approach when we redraw the lines again in 2031. Oh, that feels so far away, 2031 <laughs> to get to. Um, all of this is going to be something I think we'll be watching very closely as the rest of the maps get finished. Um, but I also wanted to just move on because next week, much sooner than 2031, we're going to mark the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack. Uh, it feels like you know, and and a decade might have transpired between um, now and then. But I wanted to talk to you, Hunter. We we have what have we seen? You know, we've seen all of these rioters arrested, charged, trials, pleas, sentencing. But we haven't seen anyone who was organizing or not there that in the building that day. Um, can we expect to see anyone held accountable? Or is the closest thing we're going to get to sort of an accountability on a low on a, on a higher level going to be these hearings or the process that's going to happen in the House committee? You know, I, I've talked um, about this investigation a couple times on the pod, uh, and I think the dynamic has essentially, you know, fundamentally remained the same for the fa- the past few months, and that is that you know you have the Justice Department and this House Select Committee essentially taking opposite approaches. 
Um, the Justice Department is, as you noted, really focusing on the people who physically entered the Capitol Dome. Um, and, you know, the people I've talked to uh, involved with that investigation say they essentially are taking a very, you know, traditional um FBI investigation approach along the, the lines of what we might see when they bust a mafia family, where they're sort of moving from the bottom of the pyramid up. Um, and that's very slow. And in this case, the bottom of the pyramid is is the largest investigation in FBI history. It's, it's hundreds of people at the very least. So it's not even clear, you know, how far they are ultimately going to go. Um and whether they're ever going to get there, um, especially you know with the statute of limitations and the potential for a changing administration. Meanwhile, the House Select Committee is essentially going the exact opposite way, and they really are focusing you know at the higher level organization of this. They're looking at financing. They're looking at you know groups and key activists who got the permits and staged the key events. Uh, they're looking at you know specific militia group presence. Um, on the ground that day. And yes, they are also looking at the involvement of members of Congress and sort of, you know, the objection on the House floor, associated efforts to overturn the election, and also planning for all of these events that happened on January 6th. But of course, the House Select Committee does not have criminal authority. Um, so as we've seen in these contempt cases, what they can do is make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, uh, as we've seen with Bannon and some of these others charged with contempt, the Justice Department has been willing to sort of pick up potential contempt of Congress charges. However, it's not clear, you know, what other criminal referrals the House Select Committee might make and whether the Justice Department would be willing to take those up. And that's kind of the million dollar question here as we, you know, hurdle towards what I expect will be a pretty damning report uh, from the select committee, the ball will be in Merrick Garland's court. And the question is, you know, what referrals will the committee make and what's he going to do with them? I think that um, we're going to watch this play out. But next week, the the tricky of the many tricky things facing the White House, um, will be how the president marks this day. Niall, can he ignore um, the anniversary? Can, does he need to say or do something? I mean, how does the president even begin to approach um, what is a somber day, um, but one that will probably forever in America carry great significance? I think he's probably going to address it pretty frontally, to be honest, because there are two aspects to this, right? There is the fact of the assault on democracy and how that should concern everybody, even though polls would appear to suggest it doesn't concern everybody, but concerns a good number of people. So that is the big picture. Then on top of that, you have President Trump's incitement of that assault, for which he was, of course, impeached, becoming the first president in history to be twice impeached. And you have the Republican Party's uh, tendency or pattern to sort of reconcile itself with Trump's approach, the criticisms that we heard of him in the immediate aftermath from people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy faded away pretty fast. I say all that, Ginger, to say that I think for President Biden, yes, there is a desire to mark the occasion, and I think he can do it in a somber way 
and in a way that is not overtly or explicitly partisan, but nonetheless reminds people of the political context to that day, which Hunter has just discussed. I think that that kind of approach from the White House is probably the one that we're likely to see. And I think it is appropriate, honestly, to, to mark the day in a significant fashion. And I think so long as he leaves the um, partisan message implicit rather than particularly explicit, it'll quite possibly uh, rebound to his political advantage as well. Well, let's switch gears a bit here uh, as the year comes to an end. And I'm going to ask each of you to tell us about a story or topic you worked on in the last year that had great significance to you, but maybe didn't get the attention you thought it deserved. Something that uh, flew a bit under the radar. Let's start with Niall. So um, I, uh, at the Hill, write a reported column called the, the Memo, and it is generally speaking supposed to uh, lean on that line of analysis rather than outright opinion. But the piece that I wanted to highlight was a, a personal column I wrote in the aftermath of January the 6th. It actually did get a fair amount of attention, but I'm just going to demand that it gets some more now. <laughs> but as people will tell from my accent, I grew up in Ireland, in the north of Ireland. And it was a column about growing up during the conflict there and parallels that I saw between that conflict and the situation in which we now find ourselves in the United States. And particularly, it was focused on the idea that um, incendiary rhetoric or inflammatory rhetoric tends to lead to inflammatory actions. And I cited examples from the history of Northern Ireland where, where that is the case. But the reason I bring it up again at the end of the year is that I, I have seen other people uh, talk not just about the parallel with the north of Ireland, but parallels with other societies generally where um, sectarianism or, or political tribalism has taken hold. And I know this is not a very cheery or optimistic uh, story to highlight, but I do think it's important to recognize that that slide toward sectarianism or political tribalism or political violence um, is uh, there's no magic ingredient that protects the United States from that. It's a slide that has befallen other societies. And I feel that we're at a point in America where we should be legitimately concerned about it, which was why I wrote that column. Yeah, um, not an optimistic, but an important warning. Uh, Kirk, how about you? Yeah, so before I was the managing editor of Hotline, I covered house campaigns for Hotline. And earlier this year, I wrote about how the phrase protecting election integrity has become a real rallying cry for candidates on the right right now. You know, this isn't necessarily a cheery under the radar story either, but I talked to a lot of Republican candidates in competitive races because in their advertisement and in their messaging, protecting election integrity was elevated to the same level as like being strong on Second Amendment, being pro-life, uh, wanting to uh, tough on borders. It really entered the lexicon after President Trump's uh, lies about the stolen presidential election. And these are candidates who are gearing their messaging uh, as kind of like a dog whistle, a, a wink and a nod to that. And it was kind of a rea uh, reflection of the reality that in order to win these Republican primaries, these candidates need to 
tacitly, if not explicitly, support President Trump's claims that the election was stolen from him. Now, you know, this is story has been, you know, covered a little bit and everything, but I really think we're not asking the question right now is, you know, what happens, you know, if this is a wave Republican year next year, and these people who are campaigning on, you know, kind of changing election laws, making it tougher to uh, to cheat, but easier to, to, to vote is what they say. What does that actually look like in reality? And how does that affect these communities? And that's a story that I'm going to be following this next year too. And, you know, one of the questions that I loved asking these candidates while reporting this story was, you know, did President Biden fairly win the election? And I interviewed about a dozen candidates and only two of them would acknowledge that Biden won the election fair and square. The rest of them either talked about, well, he's in the White House, isn't he? Like trying to be dismissive or that's what, uh, that's what Pence approved. And so it's just this really jarring language shift to harder rhetoric, uh, tougher talk on this huge issue that could, you know, pose a big threat to democracy going forward and the trust we have in our, our uh, election systems. Yeah. Um, Hunter, how about you? So, you know, Ginger, I, I really wrestled with this question a bit um, because, you know, one of the stories um, um, that I've spent absolutely the most time on this year um, was indeed January 6th. And I think, you know, it's starting to get attention, but I, but I guess, you know, many aspects of it really um, are not uh, getting enough of our focus. Um, so I am going to turn back to that. I, I will, you know, quickly throw in two things, um, right off the top. I mean, I think it is so important. I haven't covered this a lot myself, but what Kirk is alluding to is so important. Um, there is, you know, this Republican push around the country, um, to get people in positions of election oversight. Um, national journal is one of the outlets that's covering this a lot. So is AP, um, and it really raises the question of, you know, will there, are we already seeing the groundwork laid for an effort to, you know, unfairly challenge the 2024 election? And if it is a close one, you know, what are some of these partisans who, you know, refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the last election going to do with some of the positions they've obtained? Um, I'd also, you know, I, I think we would all be remiss if we didn't bring up the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I think that was a big factor in Biden's, you know, poll numbers turning in the summer. Um, and I did for New York Magazine this interview with uh, Seth Moulton and Peter Meyer, a uh, Democrat and Republican congressman who went over there super critical of the government's handling of this. And I think one of the pieces we've missed in covering that or that hasn't gotten enough attention is that there were warnings in Congress for sort of at least three or four years that kind of we were headed towards, you know, a refugee problem and chaotic evacuation um, of exactly the type that we ended up seeing. Um, so, you know, this was not a surprise. And it's kind of stunning to me that such a long American war ended with so many warning signs, um, you know, and, and the response was so mishandled anyway. Um, but that being said, I really do think January 6th um, was the story that most impacted me um, and that most merits our attention right now. Um, you know, I was there that day. And since then, I've published a lot of stories, um, kind of breaking little bits of news about um, 
the organization of it, um, including, you know, this, this alleged pardon offer from Paul Gosar and potentially Trump to some of the organizers, um, the involvement of members of Congress in planning briefings for events on the ground that day. Um, but I think, you know, if we try to talk about what we're not paying attention to, one aspect of it is what Niall pointed to, which is that, you know, the historical and international analogs for something like you know, a leader refusing to acknowledge defeat and having their supporters storm Congress um, are very, very dark. And we tend to have this attitude of American exceptionalism uh, where we don't think of ourselves that way. Uh, and for me, when I was looking back on my January 6th coverage, a story I did for Yahoo News on like February 10th um, of this year really sticks out because I asked Jen Psaki, you know, they'd been calling uh, the situation in Myanmar uh, a coup. Uh, and they'd been doing that, you know, unreservedly. And I asked her how it was different and why we didn't use that terminology here um, and basically got a non-answer. And to me, that was just, you know, a stark illustration of how our country and our leaders are, you know, not really prepared to acknowledge what we're seeing here in terms of rising, you know, authoritarian tendencies and sectarianism the way we do with other countries. Uh, and the other thing that I would say we're not paying enough attention to on this, I mean, I'm gratified that a lot of people have, um, you know, paid attention to some of these stories we're breaking about, you know, uh, what went on behind the scenes. But I always really encourage people to recall and confront what played out on live TV um, that day, almost one year ago. Uh, some of the most consequential moments of this were clear from the very beginning. Uh, members of Congress were involved in objecting to a fair election on the House floor. They were speakers and scheduled speakers at these rallies that day. They were unquestionably supporting a challenge to election and calling people uh, to Washington that day. And then the most crucial moments as this turned violence came in a way on stage when Trump himself in the final words of his speech called people to march to the Capitol. And then, you know, as police officers engaged in hours of fighting that they've described as quote unquote medieval, the National Guard, which here in DC is under, you know, the president's command did not respond for hours. So, you know, I would just encourage people to really think about what we saw on January 6th and what it meant. Yeah, it, it feels like we're going to have a lot of reminders in the next week about what transpired that day and what it was like watching it on TV as well as being inside the building. Um, I'm going to offer one that is definitely a different tone than <laughs> what we've all been talking about today, uh, but mine is focused on China. I edited a number of stories that were from um, Sahil Kapoor, other reporters at NBC that was looking at the legislation uh, that Congress has passed over the last year about China. There were two things that I think were really um, noteworthy that didn't get the kind of attention I thought they should have, including um, a piece of legislation earlier this year that focused on competitiveness against China. And then a piece of legislation that got passed very quickly as they were doing um, the infrastructure bill and built back better in the House and then in DAA that looked at the Uyghurs and um, an effort to try to stop some of the abuses that were affecting um, that minority population in China really 
um, what is atrocious activity by the Chinese. Um, and it felt like it all got lost in um, the wave of everything else, the domestic legislation that was getting passed by Congress. Um, and there just wasn't a public interest in talking about China. We talk about China as like the bad guy, um, that what is the president doing to counter? Um, but we haven't talked about the bipartisan cooperation and agreement that we're seeing in Congress. Um, a Congress that is so deeply divided after January. January 6, and almost incapable of working across the aisle, there was bipartisan cooperation and agreement um, on that Uyghur bill that passed late this year and on that Chinese competitiveness bill that passed earlier this year. So to me, it gives a little hope that um, at least when facing the foe across the, the, the ocean and instead of the one internally, we can see our leaders start to come together to have some type of agreement and cooperation. Um, and maybe it can be a seed that grows out to figure out how they can work together on other important issues. But I really felt like something that got lost among the domestic news was this international news. Um, and so that was mine uh, for this, this segment. Let's take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod. I'm Ginger Gibson sitting in for Bill, who is back next week. I'm here with Niall Stanich, Hunter Walker, and Kirk Beto. When we come back, our reporters' favorite stories of the week, and we talk about the legacy of Harry Reid, including some thoughts from Bill himself. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
And we're back with Niall Stanage of The Hill, Kirk Beto of The National Journal, and Hunter Walker of The Uprising Newsletter. I'm Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor of NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill, who is back next week. Harry Reid was just a titan of the Senate. Anyone who's been in the halls of Congress while he was in office or majority leader uh, came to know him, uh, his roots as growing up in poverty um, in Nevada, that he rose from that poverty to become one of the most powerful politicians, not just in his home state, but in America. Um, and and really, uh, even after having left the Senate, his role, his willing to advocate, his advocacy role, um, how he talked about the Senate, his push to end the filibuster, um, he was still felt there. And, and we heard from uh, young Democrats, including those like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that he was a mentor, um, that he mentored her and others and reached out, um, really was someone who I think left a profound impact on the Senate. Um, Kirk, I know you were talking about his role. Um, could you share a little bit about what you learned or, or knew about the majority leader? Well, what I found so interesting about Harry Reid, because, you know, I think like everybody here and, you know, the audience too, I've been just consuming Harry Reid obituaries and tributes uh, over the la- last day here. What I found so fascinating about him, this incredible and influential life that he led was how committed he was to building the bench of Democrats and not just in Nevada where he over the last gosh 20 years before his death built up an incredible turnout machine and incredible voter registration machine and how influential that was in delivering the state to Democrats but also his prowess as someone who could identify talent as well. You know, he encouraged Barack Obama to run for president. He uh, brought in the two current senators from Nevada. And I think his commitment to the lawn game and building up an infrastructure and a machine around him is going to be one of his most endearing legacies. And one of the ones that I was most fascinated about when reading all the tributes to him this weekend. It was it's that and also just how there were these two sides of him, which was this, you know, zero sum. I'm gonna take uh every advantage I I can approach to politics, mixed with this incredibly personable, kind, likable man when he wasn't, you know, out out in the botsing ring of uh, the Senate well or anything like that, where he inspired this incredible loyalty amongst his staff, amongst the people who knew him, how kind, patient, and generous he was with his time. And that, I think, is his other lasting legacy that he's going to have on politics. Niall, did you want to also add um, about Harry? Well, I mean, obviously, Harry Reid was enormously uh, influential figure, uh, led the Senate or the Democrats in the Senate through enormously tumultuous times. Um, But also, you know, at the national level, I mean, clearly had a very significant influence on Senator Obama, as he then was, his decision to run for the presidency in uh, 2008. And President Obama alluded to that in his statement paying tribute to Reid. Um, a lot of the things that have been said about uh, Harry Reid, there's not really much point in me uh, repeating. I mean, obviously, an extraordinary rise from extremely difficult uh, circumstances, but a, a major, major figure uh, in American politics and a sad loss to America. Hunter? 
So, you know, I'd really encourage folks to check out uh, what Ben Dreyfus wrote um, over on his Good Faith Substack, uh, because he had this great sort of breezy read, um, really reminding us that, you know, Harry Reid's rise was was a little bit improbable. Um, you know, when when he became the Democrat Senate leader in 2006, uh, it was a close fight that he was not necessarily expected to win. Um, and, you know, I think that's some of the context um, that can help people understand, you know, why he was viewed as such a, a canny uh, master of maneuvering uh, in the halls of Congress. Uh, and then also one thing that really struck me, um, you know, he he didn't just build the bench um, in terms of other elected officials. Um, I'm working on a book about sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party with my colleague Lupe Lupin. And, you know, I cannot tell you how many times in interviews um, operatives and key staffers, you know, tell me some of their earliest experiences um, in progressive politics were working for Harry Reid or that they viewed him as a mentor. Um, and you can find his DNA sort of throughout um, some of these campaigns that have changed the face of the Democratic Party in more recent years. Um, I think, you know, one great example is um, Rebecca Katz, who's now um, helping, you know, John Fetterman uh, run for Senate in Pennsylvania, um, absolutely cites Reid as, you know, one of the biggest forces in her career. Um, another really good example is Faz Shakir, who ran Bernie Sanders' campaign last time. Um, you know, calls Reed one of his key early mentors. Uh, so this is a guy whose impact is just continued to be felt. And, you know, even though he was one of the party's leaders in Congress, his impact is being felt in sort of the upstart wing that is continuing to change its complexion now. Yes. And I think we would be remiss to not mention that uh, we would not have the Affordable Care Act without Harry Reid. He was critical. Uh, along with Nancy Pelosi and getting that through Congress. So probably one of his um, crowning legislative achievements in addition to how he has shaped the party as a whole. And while Bill is out in California spending time with his family, he wanted to add to our conversation about Harry Reid. A big thank you to Ginger Gibson and today's panelists for keeping the Bill Press Roundtable going while I enjoy some family time in California. But I did want to pop in for a moment to add my tribute to the avalanche of praise for former Senate leader Harry Reid, who passed away this week after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. As we've seen, politicians come and go. Only a few of them leave a lasting mark, and Harry Reid was certainly one of those. Big time. As Jonathan Martin wrote in the New York Times, his life story is pure Charles Dickens, born in poverty in Searchlight, Nevada, population 200, no electricity, no running water, hitchhiked 40 miles to go to high school, made his living partly as a prize fighter and later, during law school, as a Capitol Hill police officer, and then made his way all the way up to leader of the United States Senate. Harry Reid was not a showboat. He didn't try to dominate the cable news shows nor hold many press conferences, but in his own quiet way, he was a master of the Senate. He got great things done, a major stimulus package to restart the economy, tough new regulations on Wall Street, the Affordable Care Act, and he had the guts to get rid of the filibuster for most presidential appointments. As many others have noted, 
Harry Reid also went out of his way to search out and mentor promising new young political leaders. In 2006, he called freshman Senator Barack Obama into his office and told him bluntly, obviously, you don't like it here, Barack. Why don't you run for president? I think you could win, and I'll support you. But I'll remember Harry Reid best for his enthusiastic support for progressive talk radio. As majority leader, Harry Reid hosted an annual get-together for progressive talk show hosts in the Capitol, where he would always give us a pep talk and encourage us to be fearless in telling the truth and keeping the American people informed about what was really going on in Washington. After that, every time I met him, Harry Reid wanted to know how the world of progressive media was doing and what he could do to help us. On the radio, on television, in print, we journalists on the left knew that we always had a friend in Harry Reid. He fought the good fight, and he won. He was a great leader and a damned good man. Okay, let's hear your favorite stories of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Hunter, why don't you go first? Uh, so, you know, I, I am from Brooklyn, um, and my my beloved Brooklyn Nets uh, this week have now um, seen Kyrie Irving return to the team, sort of. Um, you know, he he is... I guess going unvaccinated, he didn't really address this in his press conference, um, which means that he's actually not going to be able to play with the team in Brooklyn um, and a couple uh, other locations, including uh, Toronto. Uh, but he is going to join as a part-time player. They initially said he couldn't do this, um, and they're allowing him back um, after a pretty rough stretch of games. Uh I was sort of in support of of not having him back uh, as a part time player. I'm obviously pro vaccine, but you know, uh, I have decided to be happy about this because there's so much stress in the world. And and you know, I, I think the thing that tipped me over the edge was an interview with James Harden, uh, another one of the team's stars, uh, and they asked him, you know, how it was going to be when Kyrie came back, and he said it's going to be elite. And I think, you know, whatever we can say about his vaccine stats, the the ethics of being a part-time teammate or any of this, he is a very good basketball player. And and I really would like New York for the first time in so many decades to win the NBA championship. So I'm being craven on this one. I'm deciding to enjoy watching some good basketball, and I'm glad Kyrie is back. Kirk, how about you? Well, Hunter, I'm also fascinated by that Kyrie story. I'm waiting for uh, actually my 10-day contract for the NBA to come in so I can, uh, you know, uh, get a shot at this. But uh, my story is from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette this week, and it was headlined, Was Shadowy Money, Ukrainian Oligarch Becomes Cleveland's Biggest Landlord? And it's a story all of – it is a fascinating story all about how a – former president of a bank in Ukraine allegedly embezzled money from this bank in the last two decades and started laundering that money through these giant real estate purchases in downtown Cleveland and upstate New York. In the last decade, he bought up hotels, apartment buildings, office space, including the Westin Hotel, which was then candidate Trump's headquarters for the 2016 RNC. And all of these purchases happened in and around the 2010 recession, 
when a bunch of more industrial towns like Cleveland were really hurting for money and really hurting for investment in their downtown, and they weren't really asking too many questions about where the money was coming from. Now, in the last few years, this entire real estate empire has kind of collapsed like a house of cards because the Ukrainian government is cracking down on corruption within its own borders and federal investigators on the American side are getting involved. The story raised a lot of questions about, you know, how much scrutiny these local governments are giving these seemingly angel investors who are promising these big investments in their town and where is this money coming from? And it was the final part in a big investigative series the Post-Gazette did, and I was on the edge of my seat the whole time reading it. Ooh, I'll have to read that one. Niall, how about you? So I know we're a few days past Christmas, but my favorite story of the week is a Christmas-related story, just, just about sneaks in under the deadline. And it's a story about a couple of New Hampshire brothers who have been re-gifting the same box of candy to each other for more than 30 years. <laughs> and it's, uh, we'll have to credit the Associated Press for this one. It's a great, great story uh, about Ryan Wasson and Eric Wasson. And I should point out for our Beltway audience, it's not Eric Wasson of Bloomberg News, as, at least as far as I know. Um, but Ryan and Eric have been passing around a 10-roll Frankfurt Santa's candy book with assorted fruit flavors since 1987. And it goes one way and another each year. And because this has become such a tradition in the town in New Hampshire where they live, it has become more and more ornate and complicated as time goes by. In uh, 2020, it was presented by Eric to Ryan on a silver platter at a restaurant. Uh, the AP hasn't updated with what happened this year, although the suggestions included having it arrive via a pizza delivery or holding a scavenger hunt with clues. And uh, I just thought that that was a nice break from the typically rather uh, saccharine uh, Christmas stories that we get and fair dues to the Wasson brothers for that 30 year, 30 plus year regifting tradition. I, I, I love that. I'm going to have to read that story as well. Uh, my favorite story of the week is political, but it's Olivia Newsy's story on Dr. Oz in New York Magazine. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend going for um, the fascinating introduction in which she called uh, the Pennsylvania Senate candidate's wife and she left her on the phone in the car um, for several minutes while they talked about her, her story and his campaign. Uh, but stay for a really interesting examination of how he has evolved. Um, I think lots of people, particularly women, um, women maybe as some of our mom's age, knew him as um, the a regular fixture on Oprah Winfrey's show and on daytime television. Um, and he really changed. Um, and what he was offering went from um, serious medical advice to very um, unverified, unvalidated scams, uh, as some critics have said. And it's a great piece that looks um, at him and his evolution and what being on television really did to him and what that means for his campaign for the Senate. So it's a fascinating read for anyone who hasn't read it yet, I would recommend. 
That's a wrap for the last edition of the Bill Press Pod for 2021. Bill is back next Tuesday with an interview with Robert Costa, who, along with Bob Woodward, wrote the bestseller Peril about the last days of Donald Trump in the White House. And thanks to Niall Stanage of The Hill, Kirk Beto of The National Journal, and Hunter Walker of The Uprising Newsletter. Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor at NBC News Digital. Happy New Year.